We will be in Habakkuk. You can turn there. Um, you may or may not know this, but we are building a building right now. It's at our new location. Um, if you are a year-end giver, we are a year-end receiver. Um, the less we take out on loans just makes things better for us. So um, you can consider that. Um, we've had this debate going on for really, I'm gonna say six months. And it's about what to do about chairs inside the new building. Um, we have budgeted pretty much everything except for chairs. Uh, we have these chairs right here, but these are 10 years old and they have been moved I think I calculated um, about a thousand times and they're not meant to be moved. So they just get wore, they get wore out. So it's like, okay, what do we do about chairs? So I've had this idea and the idea was this. Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> so I had this idea that we're not gonna buy chairs. We're gonna ask every single one of us to donate a chair, that you have a chair at your house that you haven't been using and you just bring a chair. Yeah. Now you can laugh. And I know someone's like bark lounger, man. Church and a nap at the same time. There'd be a certain standard, you know, no doubt about it, but it would be a massively eclectic mix of chairs, different colors, different styles, different whatever, all right? So that was my idea. Let me just do a survey. Who thinks that's a good idea? Raise your hand. Hey, I like you guys. All right, and I had reasons behind it. Um, and my reasons, it was really two things. Number one, like the building that we're getting, it's, it's unbelievable. Like it's, it's exceedingly abundantly above what I could ask or think. We're not fixing up an old grocery store or something. This is a from the ground up design facility. It's just brilliant. If you haven't had a chance just to walk into it, do it. Because the sanctuary is just unbelievable with the trusses and these giant windows. And just, um, it's, gonna be an, uh, it's gonna be unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. So, that worries me. Because you go into somewhere really nice and what happens? You get kind of comfortable. So what I wanted to do was like, okay, we have this phenomenal facility, but what if the chairs weren't so comfortable? What they would preach is this, which I think is really important. Church, is, church matters, but church is like halftime. And I've said that a number of times here. The church is halftime. We come together, we're, we're, we rest up, we get a new plan, if you would, we hear about great plays that were made, testimonies. Uh, we get fellowship with each other. We high five. But the game isn't played inside of church. The game is played in your home and at your job and in your car and with tough neighbors. That's where the game is actually played. And sometimes I think we can get into like, well, I just wanna huddle here and not go back out and play the game. So what the chairs would preach is, don't get too comfortable. That's an old wooden chair. You're not getting comfortable on that thing. So that, and I like that. But the second thing is this, like the chairs that we have here are very homogenous, right? They're all the same, they're identical. And when I think about the body of Christ, I think it's every tribe, every tongue, every 
nation, right? It's supposed to be this, this beautiful spectrum of the different nations and different peoples that God has created. All of us giving glory to God in the way that we're designed. And the chairs, I think, would preach that. Like, look it, we're not all the same. And that's a really good thing. It's really healthy. So I kind of had theology for it. Now, who thinks it's still a good idea? Okay. Well, we're having these meetings, right? Where I'm participating in it and we're planning. And so I've been pushing this idea since at least August, maybe before. Like, I think we could do this. I think it might be cool. I think whatever. Have you been to the wedding where they do that? They have a bunch of different chairs. So I'm not like alone. And if you were here on day one, we had those fold out metal chairs, remember? And they were all different colors. So there's a history to it as well. So I could keep going on and on. I think I could convince everybody if I had enough time, but I'm not going to. So we're in these meetings and we're talking and talking and talking and I'm still pushing my chair idea. Like, let's do the chair, let's do the chairs. And so it's the final meeting. And I said, okay, if you agree that we should do these kind of chairs, then we're gonna go for it. And I'm gonna talk about it and we're gonna start taking, we're gonna get a warehouse somewhere and we're gonna start just bringing in chairs. So who here wants to do this? Everybody's like, yeah, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. They all agreed with me. And then later on that day, I'm at my computer and I'm thinking, did they agree because it was a good idea or did they agree because it's me? And they're like, hmm, well, let's not disagree with Matt. Because that's kind of in all of us, right? Like, oh, let's not be disagreeable. Let's just go with the flow. And he's kind of, you know, semi the boss. I know he doesn't seem like it, but he is the boss. So, you know, all right, he's nuts, but it's okay. So I, I wondered that. So I, I sent out an email to everybody. I said, listen, you have to protect Edgewater from me. That's your job. <laughs> so if you said it was a good idea because you actually believed it was a good idea, reply, good idea. But if you said it was a good idea because you're trying to be agreeable with me, you're not protecting Edgewater. Reply, bad idea. Guess what everybody replied? Bad idea. Yep. So I said, okay, we're not doing it. I say that because there is something in us that wants to be agreeable with people, right? That doesn't want to protest. That wants to say, hey, let's just go with the flow. So anyways, we're not getting, we're going to do something else with chairs. You'll be surprised, maybe. Uh, there is a, uh, a growing ground roots group that's trying to raise money for it right now. But there you go. So that's a whole different story. I won't talk about that now. But if you're a year-end giver, we are a year-end receiver. Thank you. So I think there's this kind of agreeable thing in us where we don't wanna, we don't wanna cause problems. We don't, we don't wanna kind of, mm, you know, so we just go with the flow. And then I think we bring that same mentality into the Christian walk. But if you've been with us in Habakkuk, here's what you know. That chapter one begins with what? What does Habakkuk do? He protests, Right? He is very unique as prophets. Most prophets talk to God's people about getting back right with God, not Habakkuk. Habakkuk only talks to God. He never talks to the people. He talks to God and he complains. Complaint number one, God, there's all this wickedness in the world. Why aren't you doing anything? And God says, oh, I am doing something. I'm bringing Babylon. And then his complaint number two is, I don't like what you're doing about the bad stuff in the world, right? He protests. And I'll let you in on something if you're new to Christianity. If you just got saved, there is this brilliant period 
where everything is right, isn't it? Where you open the Bible up and you read it and it's like God speaking directly to you. Every new verse you read is now your favorite verse. Ah, that's my favorite verse. I can't believe that. You come to church, you hear a message, you're like, that message was exactly for me. Wow. You have a question you're thinking about in your own mind. You get in your car, you turn on the radio, and what question are they discussing on the radio? That question. You go to the coffee shop and you sneeze and someone says, God bless you. And you say, he has, how did you know? Like, it's just amazing, right? And that's a great, great stage. But Habakkuk would say, sometimes that does not last. Sometimes in life, there comes frustration and questions and doubts. And Habakkuk is honest enough to protest, to raise his hand and say, God, I think this is a bad idea. I think what's happening right now is a bad idea. And that's his whole book. So what I wanna try to do very quickly today is he protests, but he doesn't stay there. And I think sometimes it's unhealthy if all you do is protest. That there's a movement in Habakkuk and he becomes a guide, I think, for when you and I have questions and are frustrated because there's three stages. He protests, he prays, and he praises, which is brilliant. And we're gonna try to hit all three of those as quickly as I can. So the first one is protest. And that's chapter one. If you're with us in December, that's what we looked at. So my question is this, is Habakkuk an anomaly when it comes to saying to God, I don't get it and I don't like this God. Is he an anomaly or is he actually representing a good portion of scripture where men say to God, I don't get this and I'm frustrated. I think if you read Psalm 88, you see a very, very good example of Habakkuk chapter one. I think if you read a lot of the Psalms that David wrote, they begin with protest. God, where are you? What's going on? Why is this happening? I think the entire book of Job is protest. Job asks 300 questions of God. God, why, 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 why? The whole time he's asking questions of God though, he never abandons God, right? Chapter 13, even though I'm in the midst of this really tough thing, I know my redeemer lives. Even in the midst of it, he says this, Psalm 23, or I should say, Job 23. He says, even when I'm tested, I know I'm gonna come forth like gold. That this has something, some kind of product to it, right? I say Job does this. He goes from childlike faith of Psalm 23, that God is my shepherd, to Psalm 22 kind of faith, where that psalm begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, but never leaves God? It goes from childlike faith to a fidelity of faith, deep, rich, powerful. But there's a lot of protest in it. So let me give you one more example because I don't think we protest enough. I don't think we start the ball rolling good enough. And so I'm gonna give you another example. If you can, turn with me to Jeremiah. To me, Jeremiah gives one of the best examples of someone who walks out protest with God. So here's Jeremiah, beginning in chapter 11, here's what happens. This is is what starts Jeremiah's protest. He's been called into the ministry, he's serving God, he's doing all this great stuff for God, and here's what happens. Chapter 11, verse 21. Therefore, thus says Yahweh concerning the men of Ananoth who seek your life and say, 
do not prophesy in the name of Yahweh or you will die by our hand. Here's what happens. Jeremiah is being a faithful prophet. This group of men gather together and they say, we're gonna kill you, right? I'm doing everything you ask, God. And these men are trying to kill me. So here's how Jeremiah responds. Chapter 12, verse one. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, when I complain to you. <laughs> He's saying, you're right, God, but I still can't figure this out. I know I shouldn't complain, but I'm gonna. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? This group of people, they're evil and they're wicked and they're thriving. They have the power and I don't. You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. But you, O Yahweh, know me. You see me and you test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of the slaughter. What did Jeremiah just pray God does? Kill those guys. <laughs> I'm your dude, man. And they're against me. Kill them. How long will the land mourn? and the grass of the field wither away for the evil of those who dwell in it. And the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. They're doing this because they think that you're not involved, God. Come on, do something, all right? So men wanna kill Jeremiah. He complains about it to God. Keep going, chapter 15. Verse 10. And I'm giving you a quick, you can read this. It's brilliant. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. What he's saying is this, I wish I wasn't born. My birth, my life has caused tons of problems in this land. Then verse 17, I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me for you had filled me with indignation. I'm not going out Friday night and partying. I'm doing what you told me to do. Verse 18. So why is my pain unceasing? My wound incurable, refusing to be healed. And then this is the key. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail. God, I've done everything you asked me to do. I've been obedient to you, and yet I'm in pain. My, my wounds are incurable. And then verse 18, the end of it, he says this. He's essentially saying, God, did you lie to me? You promised me chapter two to be living waters to me, and yet chapter 15, I feel like I'm in the desert right now, and I'm drying up and dying. God, did you lie to me? Wow. Chapter 20, this is where it reads its, reaches its head. He's told to do this skit. It's, it's pottery. A priest watches this, knows it's about him, gets mad, beats the snot up out of Jeremiah, throws him in prison. And so Jeremiah nicknames him Pasher, Magar, Misabib, which means terror on every side. And actually sticks becomes his name. So that's what's happened. Jeremiah's in prison. Here's how he responds. Verse seven, chapter 20. Oh, Yahweh, you 
have deceived me. What's he saying now? Before chapter 15, did you lie to me? What's he saying in chapter 20? You lied to me. You lied to me. Oh, Yahweh, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I. The Hebrew there is actually a, um, it's a rape term. You forced me against my will and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak out, I cry, I shout violence and destruction for the word of Yahweh has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention his name or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in. For I hear many whispering, terror on every side, denounce him, let us denounce him. Say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will, will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Jeremiah is saying, everybody's abandoned me. Even my own friends are wanting to take advantage of me. Then verse 13, he was manic. Sing to Yahweh, praise the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evil doers. He's happy. But then verse 14, Cursed be the day that I was born. You ever feel that way? One moment you're happy. Next moment you're like, ah. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that Yahweh overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have had so my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Happy message, huh? Jeremiah is just broken. Life's not going the way I thought it would. God, why are you doing this to me? I mean, just clearly, clearly protest. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of protest. Now, why does God allow this all to happen? Why has God had this in sacred scripture, right? Sometimes you read chapters like this and you're like, why is this in the Bible? This is not encouraging at all. <laughs> but it's real, isn't it? This is real, right? We, we have these promises that, that are awesome, that the Christian life will be abundant. And, and it is but there's also times when it's hard and difficult and we need these things. So why? Why would God let him go through all this? God gave him the answer in chapter 12, verse five. It's like, um, if you've ever watched boxing much, sometimes the, the better boxer will let a boxer just punch himself out, like just for eight rounds, just kind of like staying away, let the boxer punch himself out and then knocks him out. It's like, God's like, fine, if you wanna keep doing it, I just gave you the answer and chat, right away I gave you the answer, but if you wanna keep going, let's go. Just keep punching, just keep going. And God lets Jeremiah punch himself out for eight chapters. But he gave him the reason, chapter 12, verse five, he says this, Jeremiah, the reason why this is happening is because I want you to run with horses. Jeremiah, I want you to do something. I want you to write a story that's so brilliant and so amazing and so incredible that people will talk about you in 2018 in Grants Pass, Oregon. That's why I'm doing this, Jeremiah. Trust me. There's this great book, it's called Cradles of Eminence. 
In this book, it looked at 300 very, very famous people, Einstein, Gandhi, FDR, Churchill, Clara Barton, you name it. Big, 300 of the biggest world-changing people. And then look at the cradle. What, what, what was their, their upbringing that produced in them the kind of metal that they would be history makers? The, the, it's, it's unbelievable. Three quarters of them, like poorer than you can imagine. Not like poor, like, hey, we can't make our house payment. Like poor, we don't have a house. Like super poor. Um, the majority had parents, not Warden June Cleaver, but more like Alan Ted Bundy from Married with Children. Like crazy parents, rock star, crazy fighting parents. A quarter of them had physical handicaps. Just the list of what their life was like when they were young is unbelievable. And what they said was this, they, their, their conclusion, secular, not Christian, their conclusion was this. It's not how hard your life is that matters. It's how you handle the hardship of life that matters. And the people like the Clara Bartons and the FDRs that went through that stuff, they emerged running with horses. That's it. So God gives Jeremiah the answer. Bro, I want you to write a story that's so brilliant. Trust me, trust me in this. And if you keep reading Jeremiah, here's what happens. He changes. So chapter 23, he gets this. I'll read it for you. It's so brilliant because it is one of the most um, insightful little verses about Jesus. So verse five, I'll just read two verses. Chapter 23, behold, the days are coming. There's a future, declares Yahweh. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. The word branch is Netzer from where we get Nazareth. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. What Jeremiah was complaining about, there's no justice and no righteousness. He'll bring it. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And here's the key. This is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Now that would be a unbelievable statement before Jesus. How is God going to be our righteousness? We have to be righteous. We have to keep the law. We have to do all these things correct. We have to sacrifice. How is God going to be our righteousness? Well, we know that because we're post-Jesus. It's a perfect example of 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God, that we get imputed righteousness. Just unbelievable. It's an unbelievable revelation in the midst of trial and hardship. I think sometimes the only way you can ever um, have brilliant, brilliant, lightning kind of revelation is when it's dark and night. It happens no other way. It has to be dark and night to get them. And then if you keep reading Jeremiah, like he's changed. In chapter 26, the same thing happens again. A group of people gather to kill him. And this time he doesn't complain. He doesn't murmur. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. He just says, I trust God. Like he's changed, right? Protest is really, really good, right? And I'll say this to you. If you're in that kind of questioning frustrating, doubting stage, I'd say this. Number one, God can handle whatever you have. The fact that these 
these chapters are in the Bible is God saying, I can handle it, right? God did not say, Jeremiah, what did you say about me? Oh, Ebola for you, bro. You cannot say that about me. God can handle whatever you're bringing to him. Number two, it's to grow you. God says, I want you to run with horses. And the only way you're gonna run with horses is with this. I didn't cause this. I didn't make them wanna kill you, but I will use it to strengthen you so that you run with horses. And then lastly, I would say this. When you look at Psalm 88, when you look at Habakkuk chapter one, when you look at Jeremiah, when you look at Job, here's what you have to, here's what you have to know about God. God, how strong is God? How strong is God to let Jeremiah say, you lied about me, right? And this guy's like, what? Dude, you're going to hell now. The fact that God actually allows it to be in sacred scripture for millions and billions of people to read. He didn't clean it up first. Raw and real. What that means is this. It means that God is your God not because you say nice things about him or because you can put a smiley face on and say, praise the Lord in the midst of hard times. God is not your God because you have perfect theology, right? Jeremiah's theology is all messed up here. God didn't deceive him. God didn't lie to him. God doesn't do that. God's not your God because you have perfect theology or you keep all the rules. God is your God because he loves you and he has saved you by his grace. And if he loves you and he has saved you by his grace, what that means is he's not gonna let go of you. Even when you lose it, he's that strong. I love the protests in the Bible because what it tells me about God is he is so good. He's so good and so strong. He can handle whatever I'm bringing to him. And he doesn't cast me off and say, that's it, Matt, I'm done with you. He says, let it all out. Punch yourself out and then come to me and I will transform you. I love that. Even when Jeremiah loses it, God doesn't let him go. Brilliant. Protest is, I think, one of the most important things for Christians to get. God, ah, what's going on? It's Habakkuk, back to Habakkuk. That's how he starts his whole book. And I would say this, I wish I had time. Write out your protest. There are, you can Google it, you can find it on your own if you want. If you don't, I'll send you the studies. There are studies that have shown writing out how you feel is better therapy than paying someone 200 bucks an hour to talk to you. Like there's something that happens in that, transferring it out of your brain onto paper. You don't have to deal with it anymore. It's like, it's just there now. And now you can just, instead of redoing it all day long when you're supposed to be thinking about other things, you just, it's done. It's like, it's one of the most healthy things in the world. And that's why, Chapter two, verse one, look at this. I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, look at what I'll see. And then God responds, verse two, write the vision. Jer uh, Habakkuk, all this stuff that's in you, it needs to get out on a piece of paper so it's not in you anymore. Transfer it, okay? So protest, number one. But protest must give birth to something. It's supposed to give birth to, number two, chapter two, verse one, Prayer. So what Habakkuk says is this, okay, God complained. I'm gonna go to this tower. I'm gonna sit in this tower and I'm gonna wait for God to speak to me. And then I'm gonna speak to God, which is prayer. Listening and speaking, both those things. Silence and speaking. Tower time. 
I said this on Wednesday night. I don't know of a more difficult period in history to get away and do tower time. Like it's like nothing. I think there's never been a time in history when there's so much expected of humans, right? We are scheduled. We have this to do. Our favorite saying as Americans is what? I am so busy. My five-year-old son, Myron says it. Dad, I am so busy. I got dinosaurs to play with and Legos to do and torture of a bath. And oh, dad, I'm so busy. And what I said on Wednesday was this, like if you go back to popular mechanics, like 70 years ago, whatever, and you read the magazines, all of them promise this, technology will make life full of leisure. Didn't it? And you have all these machines that do all this work for you. Like you'll have a machine that washes your dishes. And we do. You have a machine that cooks potatoes in six minutes. And we do. And they always had the picture of the, like the robot made vacuuming, right? There was always, and don't we have that now? What do we call it? A Roomba, right? We have all those things, but is your life full of leisure now? No, what did they not know about? The internet. Oh, the internet with cat videos. Oh, and social media and Instagram and keeping up with the Kardashians, which is a full-time job just in itself. That takes all your time, right? There's all this stuff that can just distract you and take all your time. So there is never a time where you're just like, you know what? I should go to a tower and seek God's face. So a lot of people just get stuck in, in just this cycle of chapter one, frustration, complaint, frustration, complaint, frustration, complaint. And because they're just stuck in chapter one, they're like, forget this. You gotta progress. And we'll say sometimes, cause it's new year now, God, help me to pray. And what we mean by that is this, help me to get up at 5 a.m. so I can pray to you for a little while. And what God says is, okay, I'm gonna let your life get so out of control that you will fall to your knees in desperation and you'll pray. No, God, I don't like that. Well, that's really the only way you'll pray. That's really it. That we're in that kind of a world now that God almost has to say, I just gotta let your life get to the point where you're desperate. And it's not, hey, I got this scheduled prayer time. It's I must pray. My life is so out of control, I must pray. So here's what we decided as elders over the last couple of months. We have designated 2019 as the year of prayer. And what we're gonna do is the only thing we've ever advertised, like we've never advertised things at Edgewater, but we're actually buying a billboard. It's the billboard that you're going to see as you come off Williams Highway down to the 7th Street Bridge, right like behind McDonald's. There's that one there. And it's just gonna say this, come and pray. Monday, 6.30 a.m., and our address. And so we are saying every Monday for the year 2019, beginning January 6th, every Monday, we are starting our week off saying, we gotta do this. We gotta start doing this. We gotta start saying, ask and it shall be given. We gotta start believing that God's arm is not short. We gotta start praying God visit our city. We gotta start believing that God will listen to our prayers and answer them. That we need to be like the persistent widow that every Monday is saying, God, do something, God, do something, God, do something. And then God says, brilliant, I'm gonna do it. So we're gonna do chapter two, verse one. You're welcome to join us. But as elders, we've just, if it's just the elders, man, that's great, we'll pray. 
We invite you to join with us though. So protest should give birth to prayer, which should lastly give birth to praise. And Wednesday we'll do chapter three, but let's just get the last couple verses. Here's what happens. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom. What happens if your fruit tree doesn't blossom in April? What does that mean in September? Right? If we have a bad frost in Southern Oregon in April and all the blossoms die, what do you know? There's no future. It means the future is bleak. What I'd normally count on to feed my family through the winter is gone. So what Habakkuk is saying is, even if I don't see a future, nor fruit beyond the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the folds, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is 1932 Dust Bowl. That's what Habakkuk is saying. If it's 1932 Dust Bowl, as bleak as I can imagine it. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Praise. Praise. And it's more than trust. To me, this is one of the definitive little texts on what praise actually is. It's total contentedness in God. Chapter one, why God? Chapter two, wrestling with God. Chapter three, all right, I'm content. God, I'm content with you. His circumstances has not, have not changed, right? There's still evil in the world. Babylon's still coming. He doesn't like that. None of those things have changed. The only thing that has changed is Habakkuk, his heart. God, I trust you. Before his goal was this, I want to get something from God. God, give me justice. God, give me this. At the end of chapter three, God is his goal. That's praise. Praise is to get you to the point where it's not trying to get something from God, but rather, God, you are my goal. And a lot of times people come to church because they're in chapter one. They're trying to get something from God, an answer from God, frustration with God. Maybe their health is bad. Their marriage is bad. Their kids are bad. Life is bad. Finances are bad. And so they're coming to church to say, God, help me. And that's a perfectly legitimate reason to come. God, help me. And God may help you. Or he may, like Habakkuk, make it even worse. (laughs) Because it tells us something. The key is not getting something from God, treating him like a genie. The, the real thing that we desire, the real thing that we need is God. And that's what verse 17 says. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Not take joy in the gifts of God. It's God, period. I'll take joy in him. He's the one. He's the one. And the reason why I think sometimes God makes things worse for us is so that we don't trust our circumstances to bring us happiness. So we really get to the point where we say, God's my goal, period. He is my goal. 
Sometimes the answer that we think we need can actually make things worse. Like there's an example of this, it's called the cobra effect. And it's uh, a story or something that happened in India in the early 1920s. And uh, there's all these cobras in India. British was in, Britain was in control of India. So they put a bounty on cobras. Bring a cobra in, get five bucks, whatever it was. Well, guess what happened in India? These cobra farms popped up everywhere. People started raising cobras, right? And then, you know, Britain's going bankrupt over this. Like, oh my goodness, there's more cobras than we imagined. Then they figured out, oh, they're raising cobras. So they stopped the bounty. Well, guess what all the people did with their cobra farms? Let them all go. And the end was there's more cobras. Afterwards, Britain was bankrupt and there's more cobras. So sometimes I think, God, just do it this way. And God's like, that'll make it worse for you. Trust me, trust me. Real praise is right here. Real praise is saying, okay, God, I don't want your gifts. I want you. You are what I need, ultimately. Protest is good. When protest brings us to our knees, and then when we're on our knees, it brings us to praise where we say, God, you're what I need. And the, and, and the whole thing is God saying, Matt, Edgewater, I want you to run with horses. I want your life to be bigger than you could imagine to affect more of Grant's past or your family or your community or your job. I want it to be bigger than you can imagine. Will you trust me? Yes, I will. So I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're in stage one. Frustration, questions, doubt. Life is not the way you think it should be. Maybe you're number two. You're in that waiting period, praying about it, seeking God. Or maybe you are in number three, finding your joy in God alone. I don't know where you're at, but I know this, every time we come to the table, the table is supposed to tell us something. It's supposed to tell us that Jesus is enough, that he is sufficient, that his work for you is sufficient, that his future for you is sufficient. And when we eat and we drink, we're supposed to be reminded of that. All right, Jesus, you are enough. We're supposed to be reminded of verse 18. I'll rejoice in Jesus. I'll take joy in Jesus, who is the God of my salvation. You eat and drink of that, no matter what stage you're in. Protest, prayer, or praise, and he'll be enough. And so, Father, I thank you for Habakkuk. I thank you how he blazed a trail for us. When we go through difficulty, when we have questions, when we're frustrated, that we can learn from our brother, this prophet who walked it out so well. And I pray for any in here this morning that are in chapter one, maybe shaking their fist at you. Maybe like Jeremiah, believing incorrectly about you. I would ask this day, as they eat of your broken body and drink of your shed blood, I would pray that they would know 
that if you spared not your only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall you not with him give us all good things? That we can trust you. That we say, God, we want this gift. And you say, what you really need is me. My spirit, my peace, my love, my joy, my life. And I give that to you. May we receive it even this morning afresh as we eat and drink. May your life be imparted into us with power. May a faith be given to us that's deeper than just the importance of childlike faith. May it be that deep fidelity of faith that even if the blossom fail, we can still rejoice because you are the God of our salvation. May we eat and drink of that, I pray. And I ask this in your name, amen.